So 553 days ago, 553 days ago, March 8th, 2020, we turned the locks on the doors here on this venue. And it was a great morning. It was actually a wonderful morning together. We were celebrating Lent together. And we walked out and locked the doors. And that was our last gathering here, March 8th, 2020. That's 79 weeks ago. 13, just in case you're counting, 13,272 hours or 796,320 minutes, and if you're really like keeping score, 47,779,200 seconds, all right? And listen, I know that there are many adjectives that come to the surface that describe the last 18 months for us. I will spare you, okay? But it's interesting, I was just reflecting this week on just our story and being back in this room again, we had some time this week to kind of set up and just as we were setting up, just praying and thinking through the last season. You know, before the pandemic, many of us were feeling the ground shift beneath our feet when it came to the church in Canada. I'm not sure if you actually remember back to February 2020. I know you all remember a teaching from February 2020. I can't even remember what I ate for breakfast, let alone February 2020. So don't, if you don't remember, you, you still pass. It's all good. But in February 2020, I shared a recent article and research given by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And basically what happened is after taking 2019 to compile a bunch of research they titled a study in Faith Today called Not Christian Anymore, where they found a number of different trends happening between Christian identity and religious attendance in Canada. The researchers found that when it came to Christian affiliation, basically what happened is those who were polled at 12 years old, 71% of them had kind of responded with Christian affiliation. And now today, since they were 12, that had dropped to 42%. They also saw that 50% of Canadians, now there's all sorts of reasons for this, we don't have time for this this morning, now identify as either atheist, agnostic, or spiritual nuns. And when I say nun, I'm not talking like Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act, I'm talking people who have no religious affiliation. So when the researchers polled Christians across our country about religious attendance, you also saw the decline, right? So the number had fallen to 11% in 2019 in our country had some form of regular religious uh, service activity. This was down from 67% after World War II. So think of the war and then like almost seven out of 10 people attended a religious gathering and then that shrunk in the 90s to something like, uh, went from 67% to 30% in the 90s, 1996, and now has shrunk to 11%. Now, there's good news coming, okay, you're like, you're depressing me, it's like our first week back in this venue, what are you doing? I'm sure somewhere in preacher school they tell you not to like start with a buzzkill, I'm sorry. But it, it led the research to say this, they said, are poor attendance numbers all about young people not showing up for church? Yes and no, they said. Young people aren't showing up, but neither are old peop older people as well. And so many in this room, you were feeling this. The metaphor that we would throw around a lot here in our community is that we, were, we feel and have felt like exiles in Babylon. No office, no building space, this community that's kind of been fluid. You know, when you talk about um, COVID, 
we've actually adapted really well because we were a pretty fluid community before the whole pandemic. Think about churches that have massive, massive buildings, which is amazing, and some of the things that you go through when you're restricted to gathering, it's very, very difficult. And so we felt kind of this punk rock spirit. We're in the minority. We are in exile. And then March 2020 happened. It's crazy. Well, culture was progressing towards a boiling point because of instant information at the, at the kind of in our pocket. We have these things called iPhones and uh, smartphones in our, our pocket giving us all sorts of instant information and a lot of the untruths of certain political leaders the pandemic immediately brought on all sorts of disorientation. You know this, there was confusion, there was relational turmoil. Many of you have experienced this, just the relational turmoil of being distant from people. And obviously there was competing ideologies. And let's be honest, can we just be honest? This has affected the church as a whole. Not just this is not just a practice thing. Across the board, this has affected the church. For many, uh, this has been an opportunity for people to say peace out to the church. And for a lot of people, they wouldn't use two fingers. They'd probably use one, if you know what I'm saying. You're picking up what I'm putting down, right? Like it's just been a bizarre 18 months where there's just been a lot of shifting and a lot of people have said sayonara. You know, while online engagement was pretty high the first couple weeks of the pandemic, you know, at the beginning for churches, this slowly waned. And you know this. You have your ear to kind of what's happening. There's been a ton, a ton of deconstruction during this time in people's view of the church. And by the way, I'm, we're actually, we want to cultivate, if you were here in the summer, you know, we actually want to cultivate a place and space for that. We are all for bringing our doubts and our questions. We're all for creating a space for deconstruction in community. But I'll just say this, it can be dangerous if not deadly, when you do this type of deconstruction in isolation. And this is what's happened. A lot of people are deconstructing purely around YouTube and Instagram videos. And th that would be a problem. We're all for deconstruction and doubt. It just has to be done shoulder to shoulder with people sharpening each other. So the common theme is I'm turning on YouTube and that's just scary. Can I get name amen? Anybody with me? Okay, a few of you. So this has been a season in time and place and space that has really revealed who the church is as a whole, not just at Praxis, but across the board. And it was happening before the pandemic, but this is, it really exposed the last number of months and sped up who we are. And so there's people coming from all sorts of different postures. Some have just simply said we've evolved, right? This has been a moment where I've just realized we've evolved. Can I really be a part of something that holds orthodox views on Things like sexuality and genders, positions, by the way, which the church has held for millennia. Others have simply come to the realization that I don't really miss this, right? It's not in the rhythm of my life. It doesn't really matter. Like when we talk about the, it's been 18 months, and I haven't really missed it after 18 months, so does it really matter? Others, it's interesting. I know some people in their 60s um, who have a whole subset of friends that have always been in the church, and they were just lamenting to me that their friends have basically also, and this is not just young people, but people, and you're still young if you're in your 60s, you know what I'm saying. But like these are people in their 60s basically saying, listen, like our friend group has basically declared that they're not coming back. 
There's a, a common theme that we're busy or we're, we were tired before the pandemic of doing kids' church week in and week out and serving the church. And isn't it just easier to kind of like watch people online? Well, it, 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 yeah, it is easier, but it's just a fascinating posture in how things have changed and shifted. So here we are. And I actually really agree with somebody in our church, a really thoughtful person who came up to me this summer and said, this is another reformation. And I actually, I think this person is onto something. I really agree. In her book, The Great Emergence, a work that I had an opportunity to read this summer, a beautiful book, author and professor Phyllis Tickle uses the analogy of the 500-year rummage sale to describe religious change over the years. Tickle basically said that historically, if you just map it out, the church actually cleans house about every 500 years or so, calling what she calls a giant rummage sale, uh, deciding what to dispose of and what to keep. And really the church over these 500 year kind of gaps has made room for new, new changes and new things. Obviously, the first was the time of Jesus when Jesus was on the scene. That was kind of the first rummage sale, an era which Tickle calls the Great Transformation, where Jesus of Nazareth comes into human flesh and obviously creates a new understanding of our relationship with God, coming to us in human and making a way to God, which is amazing. 500 years later was the collapse, many of you know, of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Dark Ages. In this uh, era, the church entered an era of preservation as the church kind of went underground with monks and nuns practicing kind of in the uh, monastic tradition in abbeys and convents. Then, so you have Jesus, you have the fall of Rome. Then 500 years later was the beginning of the new millennium. Many of you know like 1050 or so was the great schism where the Christian church actually split into Eastern and Western branches that we still see today in our world in the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. This was a massive shift between East and West. So you have Jesus, you have the fall of the Roman Empire 500 years later. 500 years later, you have the split East and West. And then obviously 500 years later, you have the Great Reformation in the 1500s which resulted in all the Protestant movement and all sorts of branches of the Christian tradition with different understandings of how people relate to God personally. We're actually a part of a Protestant kind of movement or fellowship. And there, there was a massive change 500 years ago. So every 500 years or so, and I agree, there seems to be these changes. Tickle says that there were tectonic shifts in the Christian tradition resulting in huge changes of both understanding and practice within the church. And so here we are, ladies and gentlemen, 500 years later, where you have an iPhone in your pocket, the greatest technological advancement has happened in the last decade and a half. It's the changes we've seen and experienced, people didn't experience in a lifetime. And now we've gone through one of the biggest, depending on how you view it, one of the biggest pandemics ever. And we're at a moment where it feels like we're, the church has this opportunity just through these changes to step into its future. Here's a quote from Frederick Buechner on, in his sermon titled The Church in Secrets in the Dark. He preached this, he said this many decades ago. This is what he said. He said, maybe the best thing that could, that could happen to the church would be for some great tidal wave of history to wash all that away. The church buildings tumbling, the church money lost, 
the church bulletins blowing through the air like dead leaves. So he said this like 50 years ago. Can you believe this? You're like on your phone. You're like, yes, dead is the church bulletin. Some of you are like, woohoo. All right. Then he goes on. The difference between preachers and congregants all too lost, all lost too. Then all we, sorry, then all we would have left would be each other and Christ, which was all there in the first place. Can you believe this? This was like 50, whatever it was, 60 years ago. And here we are. So here's what we're going to do. Amongst all the changes, amongst all the disorientation and everything that's emerged the last 18 months, an important question has emerged that we need to tackle. And it's this. This is what we're going to look at the next six, maybe eight weeks. I don't know. Is it worth it? Is this really worth it? Is, is church worth it? The next bunch of weeks, we're going to ask this question. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a theology of the church. But here's what I felt, because I'm like theology man. I love the Bible. I love teaching the scriptures. But I also think we need to take some time over the next bunch of weeks and talk about practical things. Because there's actually things like not in the Bible that are practical things for today, like building, or not building, gathering dynamics and commitment Things that you can't open up your Bible and go like, okay, Ephesians 4, like, there's great things in the scriptures. We're going to wrestle through that. But I think there's also some practical things we want to drill down on, on what is going to make a community thrive as we kind of, I use, we use post-pandemic here. We're using that word very lightly, if you know what I'm saying, in a post-pandemic world. So that was a wonderful intro. You happy with that? You're all right? It's been a while. Okay. So if you have a Bible, we're quickly open with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Okay. Now, for the few of you that were here with us a couple weeks ago at our final Sunday evening gathering, summer Sunday evening, you're going to have to bear with me, okay? I love you. Just bear with me for a minute because we're going to revisit something we looked at just for a couple minutes then. But I actually think it's that, I really do think it's that important. So some of you like this is review, okay? In an article a few years ago on the meta-story or the meta-narrative of the scripture, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright outlined the Bible or the scripture. He called it an unfinished drama. Basically what he does is he outlines the scripture like a play in five acts. And this has absolutely blown my, mind, blown my mind. You will sense this and feel this when I talk about it because this bleeds through in our teaching a lot. It has really impacted the way I see the scriptures. So he, he talks about looking at the Bible like a five-act play. Basically what he does is he describes the first four acts as this. Creation, God created the world, fall, the story of Israel, and the story of the church. Now quickly, okay, really quickly, in my own words, let me, give, I hope you can give me a couple seconds to make this clear for us. Act one, creation. The, the scripture's open and God's creation is good. That's the rhythm over and over. It is good and good and it is very good. And the picture we get is that actually God, Yahweh, is in complete, in complete shalom with his image bearers, humans, and all of creation. Everything is infusion. There is sex without lust. There's food without gluttony. There's wine without alcoholism. And God is completely present with humanity. Think about it. They were naked and unashamed. Just read Genesis 1. It's in there. I didn't even make this up. This is crazy stuff, okay? And while this is beautiful, you know if you're a good Bible reader that very quickly there's an adversary, the Satan in the garden who comes to deceive humanity. 
And remember, it's so brilliant, it's actually really smart. The adversary doesn't come to humans with a gun or a bazooka to their head or some violent agenda to take their lives. He comes with what? Ideas. Facebook friends, Twitter people. He comes with ideas. Ultimately, the way the Satan works, the adversary works, is he comes with lies. Is God really good? Don't know about that one. Maybe God, this is the the genius one. Maybe God is hiding something from you, and if you do what he says, you're not going to actually be like him. I mean, talk about genius strategy, right? A crazy strategy by the Satan to deceive humans. So act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Humans succumb to this deception. They give in, they rebel, and everything spirals out of control. Genesis 3, have you read this? Genesis 3, like the curses, there'll be chain of, uh, pain and childbearing, and I've been there four times. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's gnarly. Can we just, can I get an amen on that one? Been there, epidural, Epi- but you know, we've, we're, we're fighting that, that curse just a little bit, okay? But pain and childbearing, chauvinism, the language in the creation account is that he will rule over you, and by the way, that is not, garden order. That is not God, what God's view of flourishing in the garden. That is because of the curse. There's blood and sweat and tears and work. And ultimately, welcome to church. The, the curse is you will die. From dust you came and to dust you will go. You're like, man, this is a buzzkill. Why do I, you know, I'm glad you're here. It's good. So from Genesis 3 to 11, you get brothers killing each other. Incest. I know we have kids in here. I got to be careful. All sorts of things. Just read it. It's, it's gnarly. Such wickedness that God floods the earth and restarts. And even after that, he tried to do, you know, tried to repair this thing and people are rebelling so much against God that they build a tower to the heavens, to the the languages, to make a name for themselves. Crazy. Creation, act two is the fall. Yet, through this debacle, and here's where I want you to catch this with me. Through this debacle, there is a glimmer of hope. And here's what I want to park for a, a couple minutes. The hope was a Messiah, we're going to see in a second, and a people. A Messiah and a people. Genesis 3.15, actually, God says to the Satan, to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is a future vision that someone is coming, a Messiah-like figure is going to come and fight the evil one and rid the world of evil. So theologians actually call Genesis 3.15 the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, that we get a glimpse right in Genesis 3 that a Messiah is coming and he is going to do business with the adversary. So you have Act 1, creation. Act 2, the fall. Act 3 is the story of Israel. The scripture actually gives a glimmer of hope that a Messiah would come, but God also planned that in the meantime, think about this, a people, a family would show God's light to the nations. That Israel was called to be this light. That God actually calls a Babylonian of all people named Abram out and he declares that his family would be this reconciliation project in the world. That this family would grow and grow and Father Abraham would have many Sons and many sons that have fathers. You know, okay, you're Sunday, there are some Sunday school kids in this church, which is great. You're with me. But that the ultimate call would be a light to the nations. And at moments, you see that there, this beautifully happens. At times, Israel is obedient, but if you want to sum up the Old Testament, basically it's the fact that Israel is a complete disaster. 
For, <laughs> welcome to church. For, for the most part, the entire Old Testament is a story of Israel failing to shine like stars and failing to be this reconciling family to those around them. So, Act 4. With me? Jesus. After Israel's prophets had gone silent, a Jewish rabbi in Galilee from, I love the language of the scriptures, from Nazareth of all places, the backwoods, think of the most backwoods place, Jesus of Nazareth begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And his ultimate hope is that those who would follow him would do what Israel was called to do, love God and neighbor, be a light, the great commandment. And so, the one who would strike the head of the adversary had come. His name is Jesus. And instead of coming in military force, he comes. And what does he do? It's so bizarre. He lays his life down, defeating the adversary through death and resurrection. And after his resurrection, instead of staying and setting up shop in Jerusalem, he chooses out of his own volition to leave and empower his followers to do the church, to do the work of the kingdom. Act 1, creation, act fall, act 2, sorry, the fall, act 3, the story of Israel, act 4, the story of Jesus, which is important, but we often just kind of stop there. Act 5, the church. Something peculiar happens. Again, instead of doing what every good Jew thought would have happened, that this Messiah would come and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, and it would be a blessing to the nations, and the, the Messiah would stay, Jesus and, you know, the ultimate thought was is that he was going to come and take out Caesar and Rome. Jesus leaves. Like, think about it as a disciple. You're following him thinking it's on like Donkey Kong, man. This is going to happen. It's going to unfold. It's happening. And then he says this. Read with me, Acts 1. We're finally there. I told you we're going to get to the Bible. I promised you, Acts 1. On one occasion, verse 4, while they were eating, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he, he was taken up from before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And then I love how this unfolds, verse 10. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, they said, why, think about this, why do you stand here looking in the sky? <laughs> uh, because, anyways, I don't know. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Why do you stand here looking in the sky? Well, probably because they thought Jesus was going to stick around and they thought he was going to do everything. You're following this guy, he's going, and you're like, what is happening? And yet Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's telling them, you are the ones that continue on this work. They're looking at Jesus. Oh my gosh. Jesus is looking at them going, okay, no, like, this is actually a good, Jesus says before he goes to the cross, it's a good thing that I'm leaving you because the work is for you. The work is for you to do. So I love how N.T. Wright would put it. He would say that the New Testament is the first scene in the fifth act of the church. 
And while it also gives us hints of how the play will end in the end, kind of shape up in the end, listen, the church is to participate, to improvise, if you were, in the final act before Jesus comes. This is, I said this a couple weeks ago, I'm repeating myself a bit, but this is why I'm in on this thing. I am, honestly guys, I'm not here to get a paycheck. I'm not here, I don't think, to feed some sort of pastor ego, though that is the thing. We can talk about that another time. I am here because of this story and because Jesus 2,000 years ago as he was ascending to heaven really thought that what the church does matters. And here's the thing. I tell this story because honestly, I think it's open-ended. You may struggle with this depending on what kind of background you have. I think things are open-ended here. And please hear my words carefully. It's on us. It's on, it's on us. Now, Jesus, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus' finished work isn't finished. It's wonderful and beautiful. And his saving work in us, I'm not talking about trying to climb a ladder or attain something, nothing at all. Not that at all. Obviously, you know that. But most people I know have a very view low of the church. What happens is we just shape in our mind that it's just a bunch of religious stuff that we do. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really come to bear on the culture. And when it's just a bunch of religious stuff, it allows us to say things like through all we've experienced the last year and a half, I don't really miss it or I don't, I don't really care. You know, it's not, it's not really that important. But when we tell this story amongst all that we do, this is punk rock, man. You with me? That Jesus ascended to heaven and said, like, I'm going to empower you as my disciples to gather as the church and to participate in this fifth act. And it's not God, like, pulling every little string. He rules, he's sovereign, he reigns, absolutely. But there's a community of people that lean in and go, okay, we are going to live this out. We are actually, I love the word, improvising that the story is still being written until Jesus comes in return. So it's very clear. This, all this Bible nerdy theology stuff is important because it's clear that the call for Israel to be a light to the nations is exactly the same call for you and I as the church if you're a disciple of Jesus. It's exactly the same type of call. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? There's a fan blowing on me. It feels nice, but I feel like you're distant a little bit. Are you with me? You got masks and a fan blowing on me. It's just like all sorts of room dynamics. It's great. Now, here's what I'm noticing. We're going we're, we're, we're gonna to truck along here. Here's what I'm noticing. When we talk about the church, we often say things like, I am the church. We say, I am the church. And what I've noticed is we don't fully understand the weight oftentimes of what we're saying. I hear this all the time. I hear people say, I don't need to go to church, man. I, I am the church. <laughs> you have the soccer mom on the sidelines on a Sunday, I'm sure with a little bit of a sense of guilt, posting a picture on Instagram with her Tim Hortons in her hand declaring, church isn't something I go to, it's who I am. This is actually per uh, perpetuated, this idea is often perpetuated a lot by pastor people. Even in the last couple months, <coughs> excuse me, I've heard very popular pastor people say things like this. And I want you to let you know, I just want to let you know, I am not a watchdog. I don't have an ounce of watchdog in my bones, but this is what I've heard. One person posted a church sign on Instagram saying, God isn't calling us to go to church. He's calling us to be the church. Another pastor just a couple weeks ago tweeted, early Christians didn't attend church. They were the church. 
Now, here's the thing. It sounds good, and it's a little kind of cliche. As a kid who grew up in the church, I just got to be honest. But are those statements true? Like, is that, I just want to take a couple minutes. Is that, because I think this helps us. Are those statements true? Like, what does the New Testament say the church actually is? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I really appreciate you asking. I, I appreciate it. The Greek word for church in the New Testament is, and many of you know this, is ecclesia. And here's the thing. When you read it in the New Testament, it simply means an assembly or gathering. Uh, New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien really helps distill this down in giving an important understanding of this word ecclesia. Here's what he says. He says this. In the centuries before the New Testament, the word church, the word ecclesia, was actually used for political gatherings in the assembly of what was known as full citizens. So the word church wasn't exclusive to Jesus followers. It was actually a thing in the Roman world that basically was a description of them gathering together. In other words, ecclesia or church only existed when it was assembled together. Even farther, in the Septuagint, which some of you guys know is like the Greek translation of your Old Testament, right? So in the first century, they took the Hebrew scriptures, translated it to Greek. The word church, ecclesia, ecclesia, some of you say it like that, never referred to Israel as a national unit. The word, that word for national unit was congregation. So what he's saying is, when you read ecclesia in the Septuagint, which is a translation, you begin to see that every time the, church, the word church was used, it's not about um, a national unit, but about a gathering of people. Even farther, deeper, he goes and says, Ecclesia always referred to an actual assembly or gathering of people and did not designate an organization or society. And so this word is used 114 times in the New Testament, 62 times by Paul. He uses this word all the time, but he does not use it as a metaphor. To Paul, it was a description of an object, and it was a description of the object that was a gathering together. So he applies the term church or ecclesia to an actual gathering of people and church as a gathering of actual people predominates overwhelmingly in the New Testament. Following me? Basically, it's simple. I'll, let me distill. He distills it down. Let me do it for all of us that are just a little bit slower than this, okay? This, I'll help you with this. It's as simple as this. According to the New Testament, church was a gathering of people. That's what it meant when that word was used. That's, that's it. Now, do you see how weird it is when people say they are the church when they're not gathered together? That's a little odd. I actually think what we need to do, and this will be helpful as we talk about these things, I actually think we need to distinguish between the word disciple, which is mathetes in the scriptures, me as a disciple or follower of Jesus, and ecclesia or church. I am a disciple everywhere I go, and I'm the church, when I'm gathered with God's people. Think of it like this. You would never say, like on a Wednesday night with friends, you're out and you're talking, that you are the wedding, right? You know, you have a wedding coming up. You're like, man, you know what? I am the wedding. People would look at you funny. Can I just get a head nod behind the mask? That would be just weird. You're only the wedding when you are gathering with other people for the wedding, right? That's when you're the wedding. And it's the same with the New Testament language when it comes to church. You are the church when you're gathered. And let me just say, I'll go back to one of those tweets. The notion, just a little soapbox side, side post here. The notion that the early church didn't attend church, can I just be honest, is ludicrous. 
Just read the church mothers and fathers. They have, just read them. They have a lot to say about Christians gathering weekly. The most impactful book for me over the last five or six years is not from an early church father, but from an Anabaptist scholar named Alan Crider, uh, who I read in seminary called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And he talks all about how the church practiced. In it, Crider notes that some of the church fathers talk about the early church's gathering as being in secret, right? Because they were afraid of persecution. And this created, that also their gatherings created lots of rumors because they called their gatherings the agape feast, the love feast. And people had all sorts of weird ideas. Imagine, that'd be like a little promotion for Praxis Church. I imagine all the students would come if we called our gathering the love feast. Are you with me? Just people banging down the doors during COVID. That was funny, no? Come on, that was, that was good. You're, you guys are on frosh week. You're like, yes, they would show up if we called this the love feast. There's also lots of writing from the early church mothers and fathers about the church gathering on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, as a model of resurrection. So I just want to, man, maybe I am a watchdog. I don't feel like this. I just want to help at least correct some of the nonsense. Plus, you can't get away from Paul writing to house churches. Think about Corinth. We went through the letters of First and Second Corinthians a number of years ago. They were churches because they gathered together weekly, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. So in 2017, a guy named Francis Chan, I'm naming all sorts of people. I love this. This is great. I really like Francis Chan. He had the opportunity to go and share at Facebook headquarters in Silicon Valley. Again, a side note, I love Francis Chan. I actually believe he's a guy, without any reservation, that's very much a prophetic voice in the church's current cultural moment. And if you know anything about Francis Chan, he pastored in the 2000s this really large church, but he began to become discontent kind of with his megachurch, and he left to be a part of a house church movement in San Francisco uh, that's more community-driven and discipleship-focused. And so his house church movement reads through the Bible each year. They do a number of things. I think he's moved now, but they just really simple in homes, read the Bible together, not a lot of like glitz and glam as far as a performance on Sunday and then going home. So at Facebook, Chan basically shared this shift with the people at Facebook and shared about how this kind of had led him away from his megachurch to be more community-based and, you know, how his church didn't, no longer needed money for staff or funding for things. It was just kind of this community that was spread out throughout the city. Now, it was fascinating because I really like this. I, I'm into this. The video of his message and follow-up articles of his time at Facebook like cross the interwebs like fire, especially among millennials, like people my age, for a week the video was shared on my Facebook and Twitter feeds by friends and acquaintances, basically cheering on Francis Chan for resisting the tyranny of the megachurch, kind of the mega-minded ministry, for something more simplistic and organic. Now, here's the thing. I love Chan's approach. As you know, Heidi said it at Praxis, we actually have a hybrid vision for the future where we're going to meet in church as, as church in homes the first of the month. This is not for that. We'll talk about the, this a bit later. But it's going to be a big part of our future, communities and homes. We love, I'm, I am all for that, taking the first Sunday of the month. We obviously look more like what Francis Chan was talking about in that kind of talk than an attractional megachurch, obviously. But I just want to say this. It doesn't matter how big or small, how flashy or simple, it doesn't matter if you sit in rows, or if you sit in, around tables or in a living room, whether you meet in a theater, a cathedral, a community center, a mud hut floor, no matter what the situation looks and feels like, 
if it's church, it's a gathering of people under God's rule and reign, for it to be meaningful, you have to show up. The fact is, you could, the fact is, you could plant a church in my basement, but I still have to put my pants on, and aren't you thankful for that, right? Show up and be available because it's a gathering. And somehow I think we maybe, at least my generation, I'm going to talk to people my, in my generation, have convinced ourselves that we're going to have the next silver bullet when it comes to church. The next silver bullet's going to kind of be our solution. And the interesting thing about this whole kind of 2017 and the posting of this video is that many, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but many people I know sharing about Francis Chan and how amazing this was, they were not actually participating in regular community, in the Jesus community. They were ultimately praising something that they are unwilling to participate in themselves. And it just gets me thinking that no matter what our context looks like, the revolution simply may be showing up because church is a gathering. That's what it is. If you're talking about the New Testament, church is a gathering. So, brothers and sisters, I, you hang with me. This is a bit longer. I love you. So, there's been a lot of talk through COVID that the church needs to be different in the future. And I've had multiple conversations, even in the last three weeks, with people outside of our community, more pastor types, you know, saying it ha church has to be different in the future. Our approach must be different. And I agree. You want to know why? <laughs> I love you. I love all of you. Do you know that? But before the pandemic, the average Christian in our city was gathering with the church in an average of maybe once every three or four weeks. Most church pastors I talked to only had very, very small percentages of people in week-to-week -week community in homes. And there's no judgment here, but our church, outside of a small core of people, was basically the same thing. Like, I noticed before the pandemic these shifts as we've talked. And I've also noted that sometimes it felt like when we were gathering that Sundays were no longer sacred. There was even a little language around, well, church is who I am, right? And I'm not going to fight that, but it's just... It's fascinating. You know, I noticed even when people were here before the pandemic, you could tell oftentimes that there was no peace. There was no shalom. There was no rest in the gathering. And I get it. I live a busy life. I got kids in minor sports and hockey and also we got four kids. We're running. I feel that as well. But you could tell a lot of times that people were thinking about the next thing thinking about the thing to run to, you sports or parties or brunch moses, and I don't judge you at all because I like myself a good brunch most every once in a while. But it seemed like there was just like a, a lack of peace and rest. And so most people I talk to right now are posing that the church needs to be different and want to see the church kind of do less, not be as busy, and I'm, I'm all for that discussion, that's fine. But does the church need to change through COVID? For me, I would say absolutely yes we can do better than gathering once in a while or once a month. You know, we had an opportunity during COVID and sure we couldn't meet in person, but think about it. Many of us were running very, very fast and everything freaking shut down. We had an opportunity really to slow down and turn our hearts to God in community. And my fear is, is that we didn't, I hope we didn't, and I'm not talking practice. I mean a church in London, church across Canada. I hope we didn't miss an opportunity. Because the common theme, let's be honest, and this was me too, the first thing, what would I say to people during COVID? How much subscription services I was streaming. Anybody with me? Let's just support a start, like a, a support group. Many of us were like that. 
And I sometimes wonder when I wake up and as we kind of get through this, I wonder, do we miss an opportunity? Because I gotta be honest, though there's a bunch of people that have jumped in, I wonder if we miss an opportunity to do that together. And I love you very much. So anytime someone declares, I am the church, I'm not a like, a sarcastic person or a cynical person, but I want to cynically respond, oh, how's that going for you, right? You are the church. How's that going for you, right? Can you laugh or no, right? I'm like, man, that sounds intense. Why do I think that? Here's, here's where we're going to land. We're going to come to the tables. We're going to take some time to worship. Because when we speak of ourselves as the church apart from a gathering of Jesus followers, I think that's actually a burden you following me? When I say, oh, I, I am the church, that seems burdensome. Here's the thing. We are the church together, and that makes, this is the beautiful thing about the church and church, that makes the burden light. Why? Because I have you. And I, I know you don't want to admit it, but you have me, right? The songs and the prayers, the psalms, the scripture, the confession of sins, the bread, the cup, the long talks before and after the gathering, the pain, the joy, the tears, the, the baby dedications, the things that we experience. Listen, when I say I am the church on my own, that is a burden. And I think as one really thoughtful person prayed in our, our time a couple weeks ago, it doesn't matter if there's 50 or 500, this, this is the church. And when I try and be the church on my own, it's a burden. But I'm not the church on my own. I'm the church when I'm with you, brothers and sisters. And with that, my hope is that the burden would be light. And so here we are. In this fifth act, where we're improvising, you don't have to. We're not going to force anybody to. But I think this is pretty punk rock. That here we are, we don't know the future. And yet we can be this participating community in the future seeing God's kingdom come. Now, I just want to ask as we begin this journey together for you to join in and join in with us.